time for Living Writers. afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN, FM, Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have Eleni Sicilianos in the studio here with me, and thanks to Jason for being behind the glass. Um, and Eleni, thank you so much for picking today's um, music. Uh, yes, absolutely. Thanks for playing that. I love, um, I mean, Bjork is just so amazing, and I love her biophilia album yeah and i love that um that uh collision there in that in that song between natura and um then the techno music she's playing <laughs> and could could you tell us like a little bit about the poem songs that we'll we'll hear later too as a sort of a setup for them yeah absolutely uh i have collaborated a few times with my brother who's a musician and I was visiting him and his wife uh, last January, and we just started playing with some of the poems in the new book, Your Kingdom. And first my brother and I were playing, and then I thought, oh, cat, come on over. <laughs> Add your voice. So, um, yeah, it came together very organically and quickly. Uh, Joe Sicilianos and Cat White are the two musicians. And um, I should just put in a plug. My brother has a new album. So look for Joe Sicilianos on Spotify. Oh, excellent. Excellent. And you'll get to hear some later, everyone. So so stay, stay tuned for more. Um, Eleni, you're here We've got your book, your your latest book, um, out with Coffee House Press, Your Kingdom, on the table with us. We also have um, You Animal Machine, The Golden Greek, and The California Poem, um, also with Coffee House Press. Such a great press. Eleni Sikilegianos was born and grew up in California and has lived in New York, Paris, Athens, Greece, Colorado, and now Providence. She's the author of nine previous books of poetry, most recently, What I Knew and Make Yourself Happy, and two hybrid memoir verse image novels, The Book of John and You, Animal Machine. A number of her books have appeared in French and two in Greek, and her work has been translated into many other languages. She has been at the forefront of eco-poetics, documentary, and hybrid works since the early 2000s, exploring family as well as animal lineages. Her work has been widely faded and anthologized, earning awards from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Fulbright Program, the National Poetry Series, the New York Foundation for the Arts, Bogliasco, U-Cross, and the Gertrude Stein Awards in Innovative American Poetry, among others. 
dedicated to the many ways poetry manifests in communities. She has taught workshops in public schools, homeless shelters, and prisons, and collaborated with musicians, filmmakers, and visual artists. She currently teaches at Brown University. And again, I'd like to say Your Kingdom is published by the wonderful Coffee House Press. Um, so, but you're here in town, actually, more around your work, your current work, your current project that you're in the process of creating and building. But you came to Ann Arbor. Um, I should say we're taping the program. It's November 17th, 2023. Um, to to give a talk about it and also to a performance of part. Um, do you mind giving us a little glimpse into what happened today? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, called a workshop, and um, it was in the uh, classics, uh, complet, and modern Greek studies kind of combo departments. Um, here at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor is the leading scholar in the world on my great grandmother. <laughs> so um, she and actually no. I had her read one of the <laughs> yeah Artemis Leondis, who's written an incredible um, uh, intellectual history of my great grandmother that came out I think about three or four years ago um, called A Life in Ruins. And so and then Yopi Prinz, who's here also has written about her beautifully. Um, and Anne Carson, who is here, has been very, very encouraging and helpful. So those three um, sages have, have helped me in many ways to continue with this work. I've been working on this project for twenty over 20 years, and I don't yet know if it will be a book or if it's a life work. We'll see. Or both. Yeah, so it, uh, my great-grandmother was a um, lesbian theater director, uh, choreographer. She kind of did everything. She was married to the Greek poet, Angelos Sukilianos, and they had a vision to revive the ancient Greek festivals, uh, Delphic festivals, to bring about world peace. And so they did do two festivals, one in 1927 and one in 1930 in Delphi. And it was really quite, it changed, I would say, the course of modern Greek cultural history. And so, yeah, I've been trying to work on it, not as a scholar, but as a descendant artist. Which is completely in in line um, with your work as an artist, as a poet, as a maker, it just feels like that's, um, in a way, maybe you're you're witnessing and being alive in this moment. Um, is it's just well, obviously, it's meant to be, <laughs> but the way that you're connecting to this work instead of maybe in a scholarly way that just feels mm. right. Yeah, and it, I mean, it connects. Also, in a, it took me a while to realize it, but to this last book, Your Kingdom, which was poems connected to thinking about animal lineages and the way that as humans we're carrying around these other animal inventions all the time. And so it's, it's another, um, it's another uh, investigation of ancestry and deep lineage, I guess. Yes. One closely that you are connected to. Mm -hmm. Yes. And your great-grandfather... Married, obviously, to your great-grandmother before they were divorced at a certain point, I guess. Um, he was, uh, for years, um, nominated for the Nobel Prize 
and he he was Greek. Your great grandmother was American. That's right. Born yeah. in California and then moved to Greece. Or she was born in New York. Oh, in yeah, New York. Okay. yeah. And she moved first. She was very itinerant. She moved to Paris for a while to be with her lover, Natalie Barney, and then met. Uh, Raymond Duncan, the sis, the brother of, of Isadora Duncan, and his wife, Penelope, who was born Penelope Sicilianos. And, and Penelope took Eva uh, to Greece. Raymond w- went as well. And um, that's where she first met Angelos. And then their passion, obviously. Yes, yes, which was not uh, a sexual passion. That's... It was an intellectual passion. But she really, she was really, she was queer. And... Yes. Um, so, but it was, you know, not to diminish in any way their their deep connection, but it was not uh, that kind of connection. It was a connection of, of creating this visionary work together. And why why isn't that a marriage? Yeah, or a absolutely. Yeah, or so? yeah. I mean, I think the thing that's important in her story to always mention is that as happened and continues to happen, her labor and work has been erased from the story. So, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's, I mean, a lot of the deep work that, so that Artemis... Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, it, it was a kind of a combination of things. Obviously, we know women's work has been erased for centuries. Um, so it's the, so sad to even just be able to say that so... Casually. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just toss that off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she was also a, somewhat um, a retiring person. And she also, you know, I think also because... It wasn't safe to be out and queer. And so she had a she wanted, you know, to keep certain things secret anyway. So it, it helped her work be uh, veiled in, in many ways. But but there's a lot of work happening now to to shine a light on on all that she did, because she really was the powerhouse in what happened. The, the, the events that they created. I mean, thank you so much for talking about it today, Eleni, because I feel like it's a it's quite important to hear um, you say it changed the course of modern Greek um, poetry. Uh, cultural history, or I would say. History. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe poetry too, perhaps. But yeah, it did. Cultural I mean, history, that yeah. seems bigger. Even, <laughs> somehow. I mean, oh, not, nothing's not bigger want, than poetry. Yeah, that's, I, was just gonna, I was like, oh, gosh, now I'm really setting no, things no. up. Oh. Yeah. I mean, just in the very basic fact that it was the first time one of the ancient theaters was used for a public performance since antiquity. So, and that, you know, there now there are plays at Epidavros um, and in the Erodion in in Greece. So that happens regularly. And and they were really the ones who instigated that as a public activity. For everyone. Yeah, yeah. Not an elite or so. Yeah, absolutely. And and they they did the plays that they did. They did Prometheus Bound in in the first 1927 festival. They did them in modern Greek translations so that everybody could understand. Well, every Greeks could understand. You didn't have to know ancient Greek. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I feel also just to acknowledge that um, I read that Anne Waldman is your aunt mm-hmm. as well. Yes. Um, and she's she's a friend of the show. And when you were talking about the current project that you're in, she came to mind because of her 
the title of it is escaping my memory right now, but you know her. The Vow to Poetry? Or? It's the massive. Oh, Jovis. Yes. All is full of Jove. Yeah, yeah, yes. Which is an incredible work, yeah. It, which also seems like a life's work. Well, yes. I mean, I, I know that her life, thank goodness, goes on. Yes. And as yours was before you were doing this work, you have much in your life of work as well. But, um, but yeah, it almost seems an interesting parallel. Yes, and, and actually there's, a, because Anne's mother, Frances Lefebvre, actually worked on the second Delphic Festival. She helped making the masks for the second festival. So there's that connection. And I always think of Anne's um, large utopian vision as as coming out of also her mother's history with um, these Greek festivals. Yeah, or being connected in that way. Was that was this um, familial tie a reason you went to school at the Naropa Institute? Yes, or was it just coincidence? Really, kind of a combo. Yeah. Um, there's there was a lot of um, because there was a lot of mental illness and drug addiction in my family. A lot of story threads got lost, and so um, I didn't know. Uh, that Anne and I were related, but my father would occasionally send me one of her books when he, when I was interested in poetry and trying to write, but he, I didn't really quite realize why he was sending me Anne Waldman books. Um, and so, um, that, but that is how I ended up going to Naropa. I mean, I met Anne when I was six weeks old (laughs) and then I didn't see her again until I was about probably 22. And do you feel like going to, were you, so as a young, a young poet, um, when you were thinking, what, what, well, what was it like for you growing up? Were you writing poems when you were a kid and what drew you to Colorado? Because that is a, that's a special school to go to. Like you almost have to know or be open to something already to even find it. I think. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think for me, so I always knew I wanted to be a writer, I would say, from, I I remember being seven and trying to write. I didn't really recognize, despite the fact that I had this illustrious poet ancestor, I didn't really recognize that there were still contemporary poets. Um, And yeah, I mean, I think as many people didn't or don't. I think that, so poetry came to me a little bit later, and it really was actually, I was hitchhiking around Greece when I was 20, and I saw an anthology of modern Greek poets and picked it up, and my great-grandfather was in there, but so were other poets, so it was actually these other poets, and Berikos was one of them, um, uh, I think Elitis was in there, Seferis, Ritsos, so anyway, I was just, somehow that opened up to me the possibility that this was something I could do. In terms of finding Naropa, I think it's a place because of the my family history and the way that I grew up, which was very much off-grid in a lot of ways. Um, I feel like I do not have uh, domesticated ancestors or contemporary, you know, my mother, I feel like I come from this matrilineal line of undomesticated women, single mothers who are undomesticated in various ways. Um, and so I don't know that, and I, you know, I myself was a high school dropout. It, 
so Naropa made sense as this. It, it didn't feel like an alternative. It felt like actually right, what my like wife. The step. Yeah, I mean, it didn't even. I never. I didn't know about any other schools actually. So it's only in retrospect, you know. I you know many people who went to the Iowa Writers Workshop or Brown, um, you know that they had a wider. They had more of a f- knowledge of what what was available, but. So, you know, I think there's this way that that's where I was directed and it made sense for me to go there. And when I was there, um, it was still, Allen Ginsberg was still alive. Um, Amiri Baraka was there oh. very frequently. So, yeah, it was this incredible moment that I got to participate in. Uh-huh. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, now we are going to get to hear Polishing My Animal Mirror. Um Thanks for sharing this, Eleni. Can you set it up for us? Because we're going to go into break, and this is what we'll get to hear. Sure, absolutely. So this is a poem in the book, um, and I, there's a lot I could say about it, but one thing I'll say is I was just thinking about um, all these uh, biological, you know, just our our shoulder girdles, our hip girdles, our inventions that amphibians made that we carry around. Um, our hearts are, you know, the, not a cord worm is the first animal that, that started making something like a heart. So I was thinking about, you know, every time we look in the mirror, what other animals might there be? So I'm playing with that. It's it's inspired actually by one of Anne's poems. She has a beautiful poem song called Bardo Corridor. Um, and so, and I didn't write it as a song, but my brother and Kat and I adapted it as such. So that's what you'll hear. You're listening to Living Writers. Eleni Sicilianos is here in the studio. Um, we'll be right back. I was polishing my animal mirror No moths appeared there In the single crystal genetic light In the dark mirror candle night I was polishing my animal mirror Examining my animal teeth A snake appeared in the mirror's thin gravel driveway Someone had run over, had flattened it Into permanent S-shape In the animal mirror, my incisors were not fangs, but surely they could still tear meat. Yes, the cat. Yes, the bear. I was polishing my animal mirror, practicing non-invasive knowing and wondering about control the magic kin magic skin of this animal mirror 
just me, you say to yourself, shining like a violet ground beetle under a stone. Stars are near vertebrates over to the left. Coelacanths on the far side riding toward you and birds. Reptilian branch of flame on the plain. are inching toward earthworms who touching themselves touch earth anew each time they move welcome back to living writers um if you're just tuning in i'm so glad you did eleni sicilianos is here um and we just we're so lucky to hear maybe the debut of, I'm not sure, Eleni Polishing My Animal Mirror. Uh, I think it was played on one other podcast, but oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it has, it's actually not. I should have asked you before no, I did okay. the big wind up. No. What other podcast? Because folks might oh, want to listen oh, to it too. Um, I don't, there's no interview. It's just an audio. It's it's oh. called uh, Yado Shadow. It's the um, from oh. the Yado residency. Yeah. Which is, okay, which yeah. you've been to a I have. couple of times. Yes. Is that right? Yeah. This reminds me, um, actually, first, when you hear that here in this, in our underground studio at WCBN, Eleni, what is it like in hearing this captured performance of the poem that's in your book, Your Kingdom? I I just love it, actually. And I don't I don't I say do that too. often about <laughs> about hearing myself, but I just had so much fun creating. Yeah, I mean, I think the collaborative process is wonderful, and I love hearing my brother's voice. And, you know, there's this intimacy for me with his voice. um, And I love the playfulness of, you know, having Kat's voice come in. And she has this, she has a beautiful singing voice and then this little childlike voice. And it was just so fun to create. And I'm so amazed, actually, we'll hear, I think, later another poem song, what happens when you add music and singing to the poem and how it how much although it's the same language how much it transforms the poem can you say more because that's actually what i wanted to ask you because i didn't know if you would want to read some of the poem now here in real life in this moment to hear like because yeah. that's what you yeah maybe be- we can do it when we go to the other poem because I, I think it would be good to hear it before we hear the song, okay. maybe. Okay. Yeah. And, um, you know, strangely, I mean, it makes, obviously, we know that, that Sappho, Sappho, and others sang their, or, and other people sang their, yes, uh, her poems. Yeah. Um, and just the way that these things are connected and the language that can seem very abstract becomes much less abstract when it's carried by music. And and a singing voice, and and that's really interesting, you know. The, and I mean, language as a material has this um, problem and beauty for poets, in that it's a material that is being asked all the time to 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 
communicate specific thing, concrete actions. Yes. And so um, the day to day. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, yeah. So there's a strange relationship between um, a poem, poet's medium, and their in in the sort of daily soup of things, and then their art form, um, which I think is also obviously part of its beauty, but. But it's yeah, just seeing what happens when then there's there's music added. Because it seems, Lenny, too, that when because I would love to hear you read a poem before before we get to that that latter moment in the program. Um, but I feel like that's what poem poets are are doing when they're in the words that they've written when they're. Um, when they're speaking them or it sounds weird to say performing them because performing has like such an artifice to it. But I think it is directly connected to what you're, you were just saying about the need to distance these words (laughs) somehow Mm. to be the words. Mm. (laughs) I'm making weird gestures right now at Eleni too, (laughs) but it's not helping me. Yeah. Do you sort of, sort of, um, removing or I don't know if removing is the right word but removing them from the flow of daily use yeah and and that's maybe why poets sometimes throughout history have read and maybe um in 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 rhyme or dramatic ways or some ways where we're using the language to to set itself apart from the day-to-day the Mm -hmm. quotidian and um and anyone who's reading a poem even if you're um trying to read it in like a like even keel or whatever that mm-hmm. would, it would mean, it's still a way that you're in, inhabiting the language and trying to set it apart from what you would say if you're like, please get a, you know, a quart of milk or mm-hmm. something. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I mean, poetry is an oral art, yeah. Um, and um, and it is a sound. Even even when we're reading it silently, I mean, that's one of the things that I love so much is how we're reading we're reading music when we're reading a poem. Um, even in your mind, yeah, right? absolutely, yeah, silently, yeah, yeah. And I mean, we see rhyme, we see assonance and consonance, so it's happening all the time in all kinds of ways. And even for those poets, I mean, I'm thinking of somebody like Ron Paget who writes a very spoken kind of poem flat poem and yet it's still it's still i think it's right to say that it language is in a performative capacity in the poem even in a ron paget poem exactly exactly friend of the show mm. funny many so many funny and also heartbreaking poems mm-hmm. and, and like james tate like mm-hmm. thinking about it in that way too um yeah um I, I know that when we were speaking, we were getting to some of those moments, like we were capturing them, some of them in the conversations as we went along. But for some reason, Eleni, I just decided I wanted to read your whole bio because I wanted people to also know sometimes with um, because many different um, writers and poets um well, now I'm saying many people mm-hmm. listen. I don't mean that, but some of the people listening to Living Writers, I think it'll be useful to know um, sometimes how a poet, where the poet is in the wor- world, or awards that you've won, and things that, um, I don't know, that are all part of your story, really, uh, 
because it's it's very for young poets to pick up your book and be able to see something that they may not have seen in someone else's book, whether it's the way that you have the movement across the page, um, the use of the negative space, um, like the white space, different um, ways of using images and graphics that to you is the way you work and have worked. But for for sometimes when people might see this, they might be like, there is a way forward for me. Mm. Maybe not the same as what you said your experience was when you were hitchhiking around Greece and found mm. the modern, but something like that where you're like, oh, yes, I see a place for me in the poetry world, mm. too. Mm, I love that. Well, I hope, I mean, that's, I think, one of the most important things poetry does is open up space. And, um, yeah, I think we all can find ourselves in or find possibilities for ourselves in in, in other poets. Um, but, yeah, I think the liberatory space of the poem is what is so important to me. So um, I, I think the use of the, the spacing, thinking, you know, Charles Olson talks about the the page as a field, um, and we can we can talk more about different ways that that happens. But the sort of energetics of the page are really important to me, and activating. I mean, having the poem be a radically open container, so it's contained, but it's radically open at the same time. I love that a radically open container. Yes, Eleni. Is that something that you've been on a mission to? Is that something you say every day? Because um, I'm so glad you said it uh, here. But I, it's yeah. I feel like I've been waiting to hear it. Not from you. Not from like <laughs> you're almost a halfway halfway point, Eleni. Okay, we're good. We're good. Um, you know, I I don't. I think it's more that um, it's. I'm not on a mission to do it. I think it, right. it I is something that. Um, I have had to recognize that that is how I work and that is what makes sense to me. Yes. And even to, to make that, that possibility for myself um, is, is really important. Yeah. That, you know, and, and, and to me, that's also connected in terms of the eco um, poetic vein because nature is a radically open container too. So the poem um, is in that way related to all the, 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 I don't want to say structures, systems mm. that we participate in. On that, let's take a short break. Today on the program, Eleni Sicalianos, and you've got Living Writers, I'm T. Hetzel. We've got Jason Voss behind the glass. We'll be back. Dog goes woof, cat goes meow, bird goes tweet, and mouse goes squeak. Cow goes moo, frog goes croak, and the elephant goes toot. Dogs say quack, and fish go blub, and the seal goes ow, ow, ow. But there's one sound that no one knows. What does the fox say? Hey, happy, 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 ho, happy, happy, happy. 
welcome back. I, this is what the fox says, right? And this is this is what Eleni Sicilliano says, and um, and me too today. But I won't start yipping or <laughs> yapping now. Um, you've got living writers, and I'm so glad you've tuned in. Um, yes, Eleni, thanks so much for picking the songs for today. I feel like you 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 were a prophet of um, knowing the moments ahead of time. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I love that song. It's so fun. And I want to thank my daughter, Eva Grace Sicilianos Hunt, for being a fan of it when she was little. Oh, and well, actually, Eva is now, um, she's actually at the very beginning of the book, Your Kingdom. Um, we've got this lovely, we, we lead in with All Life Loves Itself which I think you said connected to Fanny Howe mm-hmm. in the acknowledgments. Mm-hmm. Yep, it comes from Fanny. Mm-hmm. And I love that as a lens in to mm-hmm. your kingdom. And then we turn the page and we have the contents. And beautiful, like, I love how these make a, a poem of its own, really, um, the the section um It's not right to say separators, but hinges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um and and your book shows us that there's going to be a glossary, a few more notes, images and credits, gratitude. I love all of this as a way into the book. And we turn the page and there's a poem. Do you mind reading that for us? Oh, sure, yeah. Blind lady in the storm, tapping the snowbank with her red-tipped stick, a stiff, slender, ticking tongue. I saw it and ask Siri to write that down. From the back seat, Maggie said, Why can't your mom write? Because she's driving, says daughter. Watch what you say. She's a poet. She takes notes. I love that. So why is this poem here, like in the structure? Yeah, that's such a good question. And um, because it doesn't, in a way, belong in the book, and yet it does. And for me, it's an opening invocation because, I mean, one could say it doesn't belong because then so many of the of the poems are um, around and exploring these, you know, the animal continuum. Mm. But of course, our daughters are part of a, the animal <laughs> continuum. And yeah, I feel like she's kind of performing this this witness role herself in this funny way. Um, and uh, actually, Christine Hume, who's around, a not very far. Show, okay, yeah. cool. She had a she had a great way of talking about this. The sort of like the the blind person and the and the um, she had this sort of um, Homeric reading of this <laughs> as the opening, which I loved. Um, and then it goes right into these notes that I've taken um, that are more research-oriented. Um, and, yeah, I, I also, because the the poems in here mostly are not personal, and um, that's something we could talk about. You know, I, I feel much more interested at the moment, or, you know, it depends on what, what I'm working on, but I'm more interested in the collective, and I feel like we're at a we're at a... Um, inflection point, a crisis moment. We have been hanging in this crisis moment for a long time where I think the collective is so important to think about and the continuum of of living things. 
Um, so, so this poem serves as the moment where I get to have, you know, the personal as the opening mm. gesture. And or, you know, somebody, a, a single person who is um, my personal witness, let's say. Yes. Because I do feel like there were there was a moment. It's just so interesting that you said it's a not personal book because that actually has thrown me for a bit of a loop in a way. Because I was because the eye is here throughout. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, it's and and the speaker, the note taker, the mm -hmm. um, the poet is is the one that we're with so often, mm -hmm. and through the lens, the perspective. Mm -hmm. And I literally yeah. wrote on the corner of page 120, not exactly all sure way, I like these threads, personal. Mm. And I think it was to do with the strange way, not the strange way, the different way, the, the way I noted that you had used the word shoe for show. Mm. Um, but mm -hmm. then it's coming back, not as the same thing, but as a different use of it. I mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But it's funny that because yeah. I want to hear more because I do believe everything. I was nodding the whole time you said this is a time when we need to examine the collective. We have to I sometimes try to think of what are we like um, like as all of us as an organism, which is mm -hmm. kind of one truth yeah. as a way to look at things. Mm -hmm. But how how are we that when we're so divided as well yes politically yes example. absolutely yeah um and i like that you that you say that it does seem very personal i think that's right i mean i think the personal is always there and and even i mean otherwise it wouldn't be poetry or it wouldn't be interesting right um and i think that it would does be come chat through. gbt no. <laughs> yeah exactly no. um because it, it comes through in those kinds of word choices too right i guess mm -hmm. what i mean is it's not necessarily individual stories about myself um, and um, even the husband heart dream. Yeah, that is about. You're right. Okay. You're just, no, 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 you're right. No, you're right. I feel like I'm yeah. art, this is I'm not, no. Living I writers, the arguing show. No, no I like it. I like it. I don't mind being argued with about poetry at all. No, you're right. You, and you but I guess it. when I'm thinking about like the the title poem, Your Kingdom, which is in the second person, and it's really t you know um, about you know the exploring the fact that our hearts are actually really uh that you know the rhythm is connected to a cockroach's heart's yes. rhythm and so forth i love so, that line so um yeah i guess and in the, that the sense, brain is shrunken like withered to oh something. yes that's yeah. how that's that, how dumb you are <laughs> yeah yes yes the human brain um so i guess i guess what maybe what i mean by that it's not about telling a personal story um mm -hmm. even though I suppose. I mean, it's just the same way that I use the word I when I'm referring to myself, but so do, you know, six million yes. other people. And so we share this, we share this individuality collectively. Mm -hmm. um, so it's that maybe the focus is, is on that, that articulation of the I in the, in the bigger picture, the bigger fabric. Mm -hmm. Um Whereas it's true that some of my books, like uh, the book I wrote about my father, or the book of my John, the book of John, yeah. yep, or the one about my grandmother, you animal machine, are much more about telling uh, a personal story. Which, not to say that they don't have their 
um, ways of connecting with many other people's stories of having a relative who's a drug addict or homeless and so forth. But, but so, yeah, I guess that's what I mean by that. And is that actually, is that one of the reasons why in, in your short bio that I read earlier, uh, because I was struck by one of your first, I think one of your first jobs after Naropa was um, working in a homeless shelter mm-hmm. and as as a, a poet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was poet in residence at two homeless shelters in in the in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And is that why, because of family history and the the knowing the understanding in a different way, where that was, or was that was serendipitous that that's what you happened to do? Or no, no. I mean, yes and no. No, I always felt like I wanted to be useful in some way. Um, and, um, and I think particularly as a young poet, it was really important to me to do the work of poetry in communities. So yeah, I was poet in residence for three years at two homeless shelters in the Tenderloin and South of Market neighborhoods of San Francisco, thanks to a California, um, artists, what was it? A, uh, I can't remember the name of the grant, but a grant, a state grant. And then, um, and then I also worked for about a decade as a poet in residence in public schools and libraries and so forth. So I was really very, very dedicated to doing that work in community. And I, now, um, it was really accidental that I began to work at universities. <laughs> um, but what yes, I, yes, ha- what happened with that uh, accident? I yeah. Is it, I was it, for some, like maybe more stability or definition, if something. Or... Well, there is this thing called health insurance in yes. America. <laughs> yeah, for example. <laughs> so there was that. Um, but I, so when I do, I did at the University of Denver, where I taught for a long time, and I do it now at Brown. I do. I lead a. I teach a class in which we do a residency in a public school, and then the students do their own residencies. Um, it was a little bit. Uh, uh, had detoured by COVID, so we're we're regrouping and figuring out how to how to um, continue. Oh, I, that's such important work. Um, we we have Inside Out here and met other programs in eight two six Michigan, and um, but yeah, I'm so I'm so it's so um, it's part of who you are. You carry it with you, like um, in the book. Um, and in the animal mirror, we can see like the salamander limbs that we have and <laughs> these parts of us, um, you're carrying on. You don't need to um, jettison them because you're in Providence now. There's there's work to be done. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, everywhere there is work to be done. Yeah. With I am. I know we're, we're heading up on a break here, um, but is there um, I feel like a moment from the tenderloin with writing with poets there was the idea to give them the opportunity to write or was the idea that they could talk with you about stories and you would write poems or both or oh yeah no they did the writing yeah so I brought in you know I just taught it like a workshop basically we read um, poems by other people they wrote work and actually I um, was able. We even had an editorial board, and we edited an and anthology. Published. Yeah, yeah. So, and um, the students at the shelter were the editors of that, and we gave a reading at SF MoMA. And yes, we we were able to do a lot 
that way. I mean, the thing in a shelter is that you don't have the same students every week. Obviously, there's a lot, you know students are itinerant. But yes, um, yes. Yeah. That's, now um, we we are going into the next break, and for this, we're going to hear the next song poem. Would you like to read a small piece of that particular sure, poem, Eleni, yeah. to um, to set us up for what what one we're going to hear? Yeah, let me find the page number twenty eight. This is called Daytime Light Through a Barrel of Trees. And this is a this is one of the ones that, you know, seems pretty abstract on the page uh, and changed quite a bit for me hearing it. Um, do you want me to read? How much of the poem do you want me to read? Maybe the page. And then I'll read we'll, the whole. Okay, so it's, you, a, it's a, yes. I'll read the whole thing. Yes. Okay. Daytime Light Through a Barrel of Trees. Between the leaf and the tree, between a they and a we, between the honey and the bee, and inch an ant along the counter, stitching the diff. And this flower's shape will remember its sheath-tongued bee. Yes, of course, the orchid and its stamen will remember their lost bee. Bee, orchid, orchid, bee. By lost, we mean forever. By remember, we mean what language traces of this ravaging. See? Daytime light through a barrel of trees. Between the leaf and the tree. Between a they and a we. Between the honey and the bee. And inch and ant along the counter stitching the diff between the leaf and the tree and this flower's shape will remember its sheath tongue to be between the bee and the wee. yes of course the orchid and its stamen will remember their lost bee. Sweet. 
Welcome back to Living Writers. I was mesmerized there. I almost started clapping. <laughs> Thanks, Lenny. Um, could you say a little bit about the poem? Sure, yeah. I mean, one of the things I was thinking about or uh, reading about, inspired by... Um, of course, we know that pollinators are in great distress and danger right now. And um, hopefully we know that pollen, you know, bees are responsible for about one in every three bites of food we take. So um, their, their disappearance would be catastrophic for humans and other animals. Um, but I was thinking about, I was reading about these incredible orchid bees that only they pollinate one specific kind of orchid and then the the bee orchids need to be pollinated by their one specific kind of bee and um such they, a partnership i know absolutely yeah um they they range from iran to england these these very specific partnerships so yeah um, so yeah, that was that was that was part of the the um, instigator for the poem. Yeah, it is. It's interesting how there's some hummingbirds that are built just for a particular type of flower mm -hmm. too, because their their beak is even like it's very long and different than the other hummingbirds. Mm -hmm. you, I was going to say, you probably know exactly what I, I feel like, you know, all of the kingdoms <laughs> right now. Oh, and, well, we all do in our own ways, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's the same with the bees. Yeah. It's the very specific shapes and so forth. And, and it's such a um, elaborate uh, relationship. You know, the, the um, orchids sometimes are, disguise themselves as bees and the and the patterning and actually some of it can be you know it's either amorous or it can be a little bit confrontational between the bee and the orchid um yeah it, it, nature is grand mm -hmm. yes uh, as humanity is and so eco poetics this 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 phrase this is something that um you've worked in and this feels like an example of a poem where we can say this is eco poetics. Is is that what is the what's the breadth of eco poetics for you? Or mm. or yes, yeah. Okay, this is I think could probably be a contested field because it does even tend to be one that people you know there's a like who invented the term? Um, Jonathan Skinner. Sometimes people say invented the term the poet, who also um, edited the fantastic Eco Poetics um, magazine. Um, others say there are earlier precursors. Certainly, Gary Snyder is somebody who is working in Eco Poetics. Um, I mean, Eco Poetics. It, it depends on how you take it, but if, I mean, if we think about eco, yeah. Um, I mean, I mean. Yeah, Sappho. I mean, yeah, Sappho, Sappho yeah. too. But um, I mean, I guess one thing I would say, to, because sometimes people ask, what's the difference between an eco poem and a nature poem? And I think that's a very important distinction for me to make, which is that um, in a nature poem, and say how we think of a typical nature poem, there's a human observing nature, there's an epiphany, and then there's kind of resolution or some kind of change that happens in the poem, in the person. Whereas an eco poem is really trying to think about um, 
the wild systems of nature, and also humans are not separate in the eco poem in any way, um, and, and aren't primary, right? As like the yeah. the the pivot mark or so. It's that, yeah, and everything doesn't have to pass through the human, right? Absolutely, yeah. For me, one of the um, really important. Uh, instigators, inspirers for me is the poet Laureen Niedecker, who, um, yes. you know her yes. work, yeah. Um, and, I mean, I just think she's an incredible eco-poet. Um, although she didn't use that term for herself, she was such an observer. And, I mean, she has all these beautiful poems where, um, for example, there's one very short, See where her snow grave lies, the you, ah, you, of mourning doves. And so the she's talking about her mother's grave, but the, the sound of the poem takes on the sound of a mourning dove. You, ah, you. So she's constantly doing that where there's this kind of intricacy of, of um, the natural world and, and human language. What a wonderful poem to have within you, too, to, to say. I I have quite a few of her poems in my body, in my mind like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because they're touchstones for you. They are, absolutely, yeah. There's another, do you want to hear another one? Yeah, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, this is from, I actually used to know all of Lake Superior by heart if I practiced it a little bit, which is a five-page poem. It's a little bit hard because it keeps changing form. It's It's made up of smaller poems. So this is a smaller poem within that poem. Um, and it has a little subtitle, um, Passenger Pigeon. And it keeps changing forms? Because we'll yeah. come back to Because that oh, feels yeah. like definitely she's in your family for sure. Oh, yes, absolutely. I love thinking of Lorraine Niedecker as being in my family. Um, and so you know the Passenger Pigeon was the, the... Or she actually she calls it Wild Pigeon, which is the Passenger Pigeon that, um, you know, used to blacken the skies in... in um, on this continent until they were uh, hunted. Actually, just not even really for food or, you know, sometimes they were used for food, but Sports. just because there's this sort of fear of such uh, this living mass. Because Audubon talks about how they would come in flocks and land on a on a tree and the, the weight of them, they were just, the flocks would blacken, the sky would topple the tree. So they were just this huge mass of so life. more so than the crows that we see that are kind of traveling through Ann oh, Arbor again now, yeah. these huge... Yeah, huge flocks. And, and I mean, incredible that, that they could be hunted to extinction. The last living passenger pigeon was named Martha after George Washington's wife. And she died in the, I think, the, the Cincinnati Zoo and was stuffed and uh, you can see her At in the Smithsonian. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because weren't they key in the war as well? Passenger pigeons. Um I in, in terms World of as, as as uh, know, delivering messages or maybe World Um well that would probably be um We're on a pigeon tangent. Yeah, Let's I go think back. that's a different I think that's what those are the European pigeons actually. Yeah. Okay. Um cuz cuz actually World War Two, they had already gone extinct. Yeah, I see. the the native, the indigenous pigeons here. So anyway, Niedecker's little poem, Wild Pigeon. Oh, and I should say, I saw one in a stuffed one in the museum in near her hometown, uh, Lake Koshkonong, uh, Wisconsin, and 
they're beautiful. They have this sort of iridescent throat, and she makes reference to that in this passage. Did not man, maimed by no stonefall, mash the cobalt and carnelian of that bird? That's beautiful. Yeah. And deeply sad. It's the first poem that made me cry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she and she yeah, she just gets a lot in to a very little space. Yes. Well, I feel like um Eleni, now I'm now I have such a reading list from you because even I was going to mention to you um in your, I think it's it's in your a few more notes section. Mm. Um, I wrote a new reading list mm. from um, many texts were important to these poems, including. So I'm so glad. I feel like we've talked about your family, your blood family, your poem family. Um, could um, there was one thing about? Is there a part, a piece of a poem here that? has the space that we were talking about this this generosity of space this radically open container um and i i know it would just be a very small glimpse into your kingdom um is there a part you wouldn't mind reading for us to go out on in the title poem or Or actually just visually whichever part you feel has the space because I can see the space and it would be mm. wonderful to hear how you represent mm, it. Yeah. Um, are you thinking, you're thinking of one of the pages that has it, because sp- I could start here at the beginning. Oh, lovely. Yeah? Or yes. I can go and what, no. I mean, one of That's, the, yeah. yeah, okay. Um, we might want to, we'll clean that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, one of the things I was thinking about with the space, so this poem, when I first wrote it, was Justified Left. It's a 50-page poem, and I had to figure out the spacing for it, and one of the things I was thinking about was um, genetic drift, genetic mutations, genetic exchange. So the form is, is um, I'm trying to find that in the form. And so sometimes there's also kind of a double helix thing going on in the on the page, and also these kinds of leaps across stanzas um, where a word hangs at the at the at, it's the last word on the stanza, and then you leap across, and it it could be the final moment, but then it keeps going. So that's also thinking about these sort of um, leaps in in the gene that changes the species. Mm. Um, I'll just read a little from the opening. If you like, let the body feel all its own evolution inside, opening flagella and feathers and fingers, door by door, a ragged neuron dangling like a participle to hear a bare sound. Today on Living Writers, Eleni Sigalianos is here. Her book, Your Kingdom. Thanks to Jason for engineering. Thanks to everyone for tuning in and listening. Until next time, I'm T. Hetzel.
Now, from WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, an hour of programming randomly selected from our archive. From Ann Arbor, Michigan, this is Bond bringing you music for ghosts. WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is the Are you ready? Are you ready to step with Aima? To step with Aima? Thank you. 